Well, the title for our Easter meditation today is From Nonsense to Worship, a Resurrection Retrospective. To be resurrected means to be raised from the dead. We've used that that word in our order of service. We've used it in our singing. To be resurrected means to be raised from the dead. So obviously the term resurrection talks about being dead and then being alive again. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, and I know most of you are, you will know that there are several miraculous resurrections in the Bible long before Jesus. Elijah raised the son of Zarephath's widow from death to life in 1 Kings 17, 20 to 24. Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son from death to life in 2 Kings 4, 32. The dead man who contacted Elisha's bones was raised from death to life in 2 Kings 13. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5, 41 to 43. He brought Lazarus back from the grave, literally, in John eleven forty three. 43. Peter touched the hand of Dorcas, also called Tabitha, in Acts chapter 9, 40 to 41, and she rose from death to life. And Paul, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, raised Eutychus from the dead. How did Eutychus die? He was sitting in the windowsill of a third-story building. Paul was preaching. He fell asleep. It's encouraging to me that people even fell asleep during Paul's sermons. (laughs) He tumbled out backwards, was immediately killed when he struck the ground. Paul then walked out in Acts 20, verses 9 to 12, and raised him from the dead. However, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is fundamentally different, entirely different than these resurrections. How? In all of these raisings, there is no suggestion that these people did not eventually die again. Oh, they may have been spared death in the temporary, but they all died The risen Lord met with John, his best friend from this life on earth and on the Isle of Patmos, and explained to him how his resurrection was different than every other resurrection that occurred. Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18 says, John records, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's interesting to me because Just a few weeks earlier, he had laid on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper, so familiar, so endearing, so close that he could literally physically lay on his chest with a sweet endearment. And now he sees the resurrected Jesus and he falls down like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, John says, saying, do not be afraid, which means he was afraid. I am the first and the last. Listen, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, now I am alive forevermore. Fundamentally different than all of those other resurrections. They all died again, not Jesus. This Easter morning, we are going to listen to an extended account of Jesus' unique resurrection from the dead. 
Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Don't be afraid when I tell you we are going to skim this entire chapter because it's intended to be one unit and taken as a single section. While you're turning to Luke 24, let me tell you how Luke begins this gospel. He says back in chapter 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. In other words, many accounts of Jesus were swirling around, including Matthew and Mark by this time. Just as they were handed down to us by those from the, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well. Listen, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. Luke, being a physician, being very precise, being very articulate, gathered as many accounts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the account of the Lord's life, his teaching, his death, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension, and pulled those together for the ear of a man, his friend named Theophilus. That's intriguing to me. Because as we come to chapter 24, we should have fresh ears and fresh eyes to hear Luke tell the story as if we were a man he were writing to, saying, you've got to know how the story ended. You have to know the details of the fact that Jesus, who was publicly executed, killed, how dead the Roman soldiers pierced his side and confirming his death, buried him, but he didn't stay dead. This morning we are going to skim and fly and enjoy this account of Luke's retrospective on the resurrection of Jesus. Then we'll draw some conclusions at the end. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, that would have been Sunday. The seventh day would have been, seventh day is the Sabbath, which was Saturday. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb with spices which they had prepared. Now, the first question we have to ask is, who are they? Who came? Well, Matthew 27, 56 and Mark 15, 40 and 41 tell us that this group was a group of ladies that included Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Lesser and Joseph, Salome the mother of James and John and many others, the text tells us. I find it interesting that these were the first women to come and see the empty tomb. The first people were these women. These same women were there at his death, at his burial, and at his resurrection. They show up at the tomb Verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This would have been a tomb that had a rolling guide stone that would have been rolled over the top of it. As we read from Matthew earlier, it would have been sealed with Pilate's seal. No one was to have disturbed this seal. And yet, they found the stone rolled away. No one was there. They entered, they stooped down to look in, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
Matthew fills in the gap here in, in chapter 28. He tells us that an earthquake had occurred. An angel had rolled the stone away. The Roman guards had fainted and fled with fear. So Mark and Luke and John make no mention of the guards. So it appears that they, they fled immediately. And when these women showed up, they were already long gone. They were coming to finish the burial process for their dear Lord. He had died late in the afternoon on Friday with a uh, being in the spring. The light was quickly fading. They could not violate the Sabbath by preparing this dead body nor touch a dead body on the Sabbath, which began at sunset. So they did as much as they could. They left some of the, the spices there. They brought other spices to basically embalm the body in honor of the Lord. And they were planning on coming and finishing the job early on Sunday morning. They show up, tomb is empty, and no one's there. While they were perplexed about this, verse 4, behold, and remember, when you read behold in the Bible, it's like saying, guess what? Behold, guess what? Two men stood near them in dazzling, lightning white clothing. No bleach in that time. So to have anything as white as snow would have been a symbol of something supernatural. And the women, as the women were terrified, they dropped to their faces, bowed their faces to the ground and said to the men, the men said to them rather, to these ladies, why do you seek the living one among the dead? These angels appeared as men. They contextualized themselves to show themselves to these women. And they ask a question. Listen to this question. Imagine hearing this question in their situation. Why do you seek the living one, the living one, in a graveyard among the dead? An astonishing statement. Imagine visiting the loved one or a friend of someone that you care deeply about, a loved one or a friend, and you show up at the grave, show up at the gravesite to honor, to remember, to spend some reflective time, and someone there tells you, why are you seeking someone who's dead? Because he's not dead, he's alive. They go on, verse six, he's not here, but he has risen. If you underline things in your Bible, that's one to put highlighter on. Then the angel becomes this teacher, this pedagogue. Remember how he spoke to you while he was up north in Galilee? That's where we're studying in the book of Mark. He's still up in Galilee. He spoke to you saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Remember when he told you this? Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. They heard that, those statements. Multiple times Jesus tells them the plan. 
But not until now does verse 8 happen. Verse 8. And they remembered his words. How do we know they remembered it then? They were coming to embalm a dead man. And then the angel says, um, excuse me, do you remember? Do you remember what happened? Do you remember that part in Jesus' teaching? Do you happen to remember that part where he said, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die and raise on, rise on the third day. Do you remember that part? How, how could they have forgotten that part? Well, they never internalized it. That's the answer. So now in verse 9, they returned from the tomb, they hastened from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11, that's the 12 minus Judas, and to all the rest. So there are a group of people, not just the 11, there are multiple people. Two of them are going to meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus in just a few moments. They give this report. Now, they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. Also, other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. Now, I don't think verse 11 is a masochistic kind of masculine overreach of let's not listen to these women. I think they didn't believe it. Look at verse 11. But the words of Jesus rising from the dead, these words appeared to them as nonsense. Nonsense. How much nonsense? And they would not believe these ladies. They would not believe them. Wow. They had been instructed over and over and over by Jesus. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be condemned by the Jewish leadership. I'm going to be executed and killed. I'm going to be in the grave. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. So we'll see in a few weeks in our study of Mark that one point, he tells them that, and their next question is, when you get to your kingdom, where can I sit? Completely clueless. For the majority of the disciples in that room, it sounded like nonsense, but not all of them. An empty tune, Jesus alive, no way. Listen, please understand this. The resurrection of Jesus was no less credible to the people of the first century when they first heard it than it is for us to hear of a man or a woman rising from the dead in our world, in our generation. It was an absurd thought as much to them as to the modern mind. However, two men, we find out from the combination of the gospel record Peter and John take hope and they begin sprinting which becomes a bit of a race we know that because John is quick to tell us that he made it there first <laughs> and Peter Luke is quick to tell us he made it there first he may have been exhausted hands on his knees bend over from the run and Peter gets to the grave first passes him now, just for a quick moment, just hold on. Don't even try to write this down. Let me give you some, some summary, some synoptic parallel. Here's what happened. I'm going to give you a quick overview in just a few seconds so you can kind of put the pieces together. 
Finding the stone rolled away, the women enter the tomb, but they find it empty. While they're still in the tomb, the angels come and appear to them, speak of them, uh, to them of Jesus' promises. His, um, and they sent him to find Peter and the disciples, these ladies to find Peter and the disciples, to report all that they had seen and even what they had not seen. The women did as they were told. The disciples were skeptical at first, but two of them ran John and Peter, John arrived first in John 20, verse 4. Peter actually enters the tomb first, though, in John 20, verse 6. They see the linen wrappings intact but empty, proof that Jesus was risen. They immediately leave. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb, standing outside weeping when Christ appears to her personally. The first post-resurrection appearance by the Lord to Mary Magdalene. Sometime soon after that, Jesus meets the other women on the road. Then he appeared to them all as well. Later in the day, he appears to the two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus and to Peter. And eventually he will see them all in a room. Back to Luke's account. Verse 12. Peter got up, ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. The Greek is emphatic. He only saw the wrappings. In other words, he did not see the body that was wrapped inside the wrappings. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Imagine that walk back to his house. What has just happened? Luke then shifts scenes. Two of them, the disciples, remember there were 11 plus a group of other men and women there. We meet two of these that were not the 11. We're going that very day to a village named Emmaus. They were going from Jerusalem, seven miles from Jerusalem. So, this is important. Don't, don't miss this. They're in Jerusalem. They're going to travel the seven miles to Emmaus, a village outside of Jerusalem. Luke is quick to tell us it's seven miles. That's important. They were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Must have been a busy road, the walking along, talking about the last week, the last few days. And this gentleman comes up and starts, walk, starts walking with them. But, verse 16, their eyes were prevented. This is a supernatural veiling. Were prevented from recognizing him. I love this. Jesus incognito. He said to them, um, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? I just sense a curled-lipped smile on the face of the Lord. What are you guys talking about? And they stood still, looking sad. They're walking. They stop. They're overwhelmed with grief. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? I love this, verse 19. Jesus said to them, what things? 
Pray tell. They said to him, well, here it is. The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people. And now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. I think that's very interesting. They didn't talk about the Romans or Pilate, but assigned the guilt to the Jewish leadership. Ah, verse 21. Feel the grief in verse 21. But we were hoping, we hoped, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Maybe he would have, would have been the Messiah. Indeed, besides this, it is the third day since these things happened. Why does he say that they say the third day, probably Cleopas? Why does he say that? I think they were shocked that the stranger didn't know of these things because of the event had happened three days before. Reiterates what they'd ask him. You've been around? Have you not, have you not heard what's happened? The talk of the entire town was the execution and crucifixion of the Nazarene miracle worker. Then we find out that they had been in the room and received the report of the women, verse 22. But also, but also, um, some women came among us and amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb. Who were those two men, by the way? Peter and John. And found it exactly as the women also had said. But him, the body, they did not see. Verse 25. Jesus says to them, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? You thought he was the Christ, but had you known your older testaments, the law and the prophets, you would have seen Isaiah 53, that this was going to happen Then, verse 27, beginning with Moses, the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself. Here is the third characterization in all the scriptures. These were the three designations of the Jewish scripture. The law, the prophets, excuse me, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the scriptures, the writings. Threefold division. Here's the question that theologians grapple with. What did he tell them? Did he start at Genesis 1-1 and say, get comfortable, it's going to be a long ride. We got to get through Malachi and we don't have tons of time. So please sit down and get comfortable. This journey was only seven miles. 
Meaning whatever he taught them about finding himself in all the scriptures was a couple to three hours. So was he comprehensive? That's the question. No, he wasn't comprehensive. He couldn't have been comprehensive. But I think he did talk about the sacrificial system full of types and symbols that point to the sufferings of the Messiah and his death. Hebrews tells us that these people got into a rhythm. Guilt, animal, death, blood, guilt, animal, death, blood, sacrifice after sacrifice over and over and over, longing for the great sacrifice which would end them all. This, he probably went to Genesis 3.15, what we call the proto or the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah 52, verse 14 through Isaiah 53, verse 12. Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13. Probably highlighting from each of those sections of Scripture. Look, if you had looked closely enough, you should have had a different anticipation than you're experiencing now. They've now traveled the seven miles. We don't know, by the way, if Jesus came at mile one or mile six or mile four. He just shows up. They get close to the village. Verse 28, they approach the village where they were going. And he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him saying, stay with us. For it is getting toward evening. And the day is now nearly over. Please, this instruction is unlike anything we've ever heard. Ever heard? Please stay, be with us, and teach us more. So he went in to stay with him. It was getting close to the evening. The day is now nearly over. When he had reclined at the table, he took bread and blessed it. Instant leadership. I love this. He sits down at the table and he doesn't wait for anyone else to bless the bread. He just takes sovereign leadership. Imagine being a guest at someone's house and just saying, okay, let's pray. Just took control and began giving it to him, distributing to it. Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and it was Jesus. They recognized him. And the instant they see that this is Jesus, he's gone. Sometimes I wish that we could all read the Greek because it literally says, as they were looking at him, the look went away. He dematerialized. He, He invisibilized. He disappeared. Is invisibilized a word? It is now. He disappeared. Instead of thinking about that phenomenon, look at their debrief. Verse 32, they said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us, the doctrine of illumination? They got up right then, that very hour, returned to Jerusalem. This is a 14-mile round trip. (laughs) I love that. Don't miss the detail of that. Seven miles out, 
seven miles back to Jerusalem. I imagine that was a very quick seven miles. Found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. And they said to these, this group, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. You know how you're, if as a parent you're talking to, to your children and they say, you know, they don't say this has happened. This really happened. As if to add the emphasis, that's exactly what they did. This really happened. He appeared to Simon in verse 34. 36, they began teaching their experiences. 35, rather. They began teaching their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. There is a world of insight in verse 34 that when Jesus appeared to Peter by himself, I look forward to hearing about in heaven. While they were in this room telling them these things, He himself stood in their midst and said to them, Calm down. Peace be with you. But they were frightened and thought they were seeing a ghost, a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you terrified, troubled? Why do you, you, why, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? They were still unsure. He looked like Jesus. He wasn't the bloody mess that they saw him on Friday. They thought he was Jesus. But they doubted. Verse 39. Look, see my hands and my feet? That it is emphatic in the Greek. I myself touch me. And see, this is the same body that had just disappeared and reappeared. Truly man, touch me, see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. We had done this. He showed them his hands and his feet. And while they could not hardly believe it, but because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, this is just almost hilarious. They're looking at these hands and these feet. And he says, I'm hungry. Um, You have anything to eat? A sweet proof that Jesus continues to be a man even after the resurrection. This is important. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Why? To show them he wasn't a spirit. He was still a man even in his resurrection state. Verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, the doctrine of illumination comes up again. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He still does that to believers who long to understand what the Bible means. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. He charged them with the great commission. 
You are witnesses. You've seen this, of these things. And behold, guess what? I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That would be the day of Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. Two miles. He led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into the sky, into heaven. So before, they had doubted. Before, they questioned. They thought it incredulous. But look at what happens in verse 52. And they, after worshiping him, you only worship God. They knew the response to Jesus as the resurrected God-man, was to give him what he deserves, and that's worship. They go the two miles back up to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple praising God. They would indeed be witnesses. Witnesses to the resurrection. Listen to what Acts 3.14 says, You disowned the holy and righteous one. Ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Wow. What do we do with this? What do we do with this from doubt to worship? Well, I've just jotted down four takeaways for my own heart. You're welcome to find your own. Maybe this will be helpful as you think about the resurrection of the Lord. The first is this. Christ's resurrection gives us hope that death is not the end for a believer. Christ's resurrection gives us hope that death is not the end for a believer. First Corinthians 15 tells us Christ is the firstborn of the dead. In other words, what he did was just paving the way for others to follow after him. Colossians 1.18, the firstborn from the dead. First Thessalonians 4, 1 Peter 3 say the same thing. The concept of resurrection is expressed in terms of a transformed body for us. Philippians 3.21, a new dwelling, 2 Corinthians 5.2, new clothing, 2 Corinthians 5.4, Revelation 6.11. And the New Testament also makes a dramatic contrast between the resurrection life that we're given as believers and the resurrection to damnation and judgment as unbelievers. It gives us hope that if Christ raised from the dead, death isn't the final enemy for us. Hebrews 2.14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, listen, verse 15, and might free those who through fear of death 
were subject to slavery all of their lives. In other words, we are all born slaves to the fear of death because of the resurrection of Jesus. We do not have to fear death in the way that we did before. Oh, listen, I'm not excited about the dying part, but the being dead part, we have hope. Number two, Christ's resurrection assures that we can be forgiven of sin. Christ's resurrection assures that we can be forgiven of our sins. We talked about this earlier in the service. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This sounds almost heretical to say, but it's true. The death of Jesus would not have procured forgiveness for sins without the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says that without the resurrection, you are still in your sins. Make sure, friends, make sure when you're sharing the gospel with those who you love and know that you include the resurrection with equal emphasis as you do the cross. If you're here with us and you're wondering what that means, this is the good news. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve death and hell. God, knowing that, sent his only son to die for us. The word for means in place of and as a benefit toward. He died for us. So that we wouldn't have to experience the holy and righteous, well-deserved wrath of God on our lives. He took that wrath for us. He shielded us from God's righteous and furious, holy anger at our sin. And that's what happened on the cross. They buried him, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. That's good news, that if you believe, God will use your belief, your faith, and say, what you believe and what I've done, I'm gonna credit to your eternal account as righteousness, as perfection. Based on the righteous life being given to us, righteous life of Jesus, and our sins being paid for at the cross. I'm gonna give that to you if you'll receive it by faith. Number three, Christ's resurrection gives a believer hope in any circumstance. Hope in any circumstance. It's the greatest threat to our life, death. If death is the greatest enemy and it has been extinguished by the resurrection of Jesus for those who believe the good news of the gospel, then we can have hope in any situation. I think when you're in your darkest hours, you can preach to your own heart and say, yes, this is awful. Yes, this is painful. Yes, this is troublesome. Yes, this brings anxiety. Yes, this brings discouragement. And I lack hope and despair. But I will not suffer hell. Jonathan Edwards said in his resolutions, 
I want to be resolved that I want to think often about the torments of hell, which will make me think that what I'm experiencing in this life is not that bad. And then number four, there could be dozens of these. Christ's resurrection provides for us the power not to sin. Christ's resurrection provides for a believer and a believer only the power not to sin. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Fa- God the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly sh- we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Two chapters later, Paul says in chapter 6, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, think about this. This is so encouraging. The power that raised Jesus from being dead, no pulse, no heartbeat, wrapped up in a grave, that supernatural power is in your spiritual reservoir to access when you're tempted. We don't have to sin. The next time you're tempted, I think the greatest spiritual discipline a Christian can apply is to remember in the moment of temptation to think that I have been given all the power of heaven that raised Christ Jesus from the dead to stop my mind from thinking sinful thoughts, to stop my heart from leaning towards sin and to stop my actions from committing sin. There is no excuse. The disciples moved from thinking the resurrection was nonsense to worshiping the resurrected Savior. He deserves your worship and your honor this morning. Let me beg you, if you you are not a Christian, if you have not given your life to the Lord of glory who will direct your life into greener pastures and greater joy than you can ever imagine with your deepest aspirations from this world, you can turn from your sin, embrace the good news that God will save you from yourself, save you from Satan, save you from hell, save you from his own wrath if you'll believe what he's done for you. Nothing you can add to your works that will please God, but only believing his works that have been accomplished for you. That's wonderful news. That's good news, which is the translation of the word gospel. Love Easter Sunday. No doubt you have lunch with some friends that you know and care about. If your soul, if your heart is troubled, if you feel insecure about your eternity, would you please, 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 lunch can wait. Don't leave. Don't leave without talking to someone around you. Our prayer room will be open in a moment. There'll be some folks in there who would love to pray with you, talk with you. Eternity is at stake in what you do with the message that Jesus died for sins and rose from the grave 
to deliver us from them. Let's pray.